RCA Radio, a podcast where we cover the latest news and challenges in regulatory, compliance, and quality assurance facing the life science industries. I'm your host, Brandon Miller. In this episode of RCA Radio, we'll be discussing challenges companies face with the current regulatory requirements in the U.S. and EU while focusing on the personal protective equipment. Today, I'm joined by Jordan Elder, RCA's regulatory expert, Higa Dimitriou, an expert certifier at BSI, and Nathan Shipley, a global certification manager at BSI. Welcome, Jordan, Kiga, and Nathan. Thank you. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. As I said before, we're talking about the challenges with the current requirements to get a better understanding about the industry trends and the pitfalls the requirements are bringing forward, which brings me to my first question. Over the last couple of years, what trends and challenges have you three been seeing in the regulatory space? Well, when we look back over the last two years in relation to the regulatory space, it is hard not to talk about the COVID pandemic in terms of trends seen, the challenges faced, and um, lessons learned. And a topic which almost certainly comes up in, in any COVID discussion is disposable respiratory masks. Today, we want to talk about our experience of um, industrial PPE masks in particular, which were also widely used as medical masks during, during the pandemic. Undoubtedly, the, the, the COVID pandemic increased demand across the world for, for medical PPE, which coupled with, with the disruptions in uh, supply chain and the high concentration of PPE manufacturers only in few countries led to global shortages. And because of the high demand and the shortages in markets, medical PPE necessitated an urgent review at that time. And in some cases, a temporary relaxation of regulatory requirements to ensure that PPE was made available for healthcare and frontline workers. And changes in regulatory requirement during pandemic, which sometimes felt like daily occurrence, was another difficult challenge for the industry to grapple with. A classic example of that was the UK government's guidance for businesses making the COVID PPE. And this document had seven revisions within a six-month period between March and September. So you can imagine how hard it was to, to keep up. Uh, but to answer your question on trends and challenges, well, since the COVID pandemic, a lot of lessons were learned. And firstly, those temporary easement rules and quick routes to place products onto the market have been stopped, leading to market surveillance authorities scrutinizing respiratory products a great deal more. One example is that ear-loop masks are now not recommended for certification against the PPE regulation and certainly not allowed by the health and safety executive in the UK and in many EU countries, including Switzerland, Germany or, or France. And this is because the e-loop masks don't offer adequate fit. And with poor fit, then it comes inadequate protection um, and risks of exposure to, to harmful substances. And second trend I wanted to bring up today in the conversation is what I think a lot of manufacturers of medical masks have discovered is the fact that trying to offer 
a protective product for sale in different continents and markets is not an easy task. It takes a lot of effort and resources to understand the different routes of compliance, depending on where you are geographically. And there are different market access requirements when comparing Europe, Australia, UAE or North America. And also with the UK, setting up the UKCA scheme after exiting the European Union and the UAE setting up a new MOYA certification rules. So overall, from my experience, a product launch in multiple markets has become even more complex now. And I wonder... Jordan, have you seen the same trends in medical devices field in the U.S.? I have. And specifically when you're talking about PPE, one of the trends that I've seen during the COVID pandemic, as you mentioned, was an oversaturation of the market of these devices. And many of the devices at the time, because of FDA's EUA authorization, didn't quite meet the threshold of what would be expected for a device now and today after the pandemic was issued over. There are class two medical devices with that. There's requirements for special controls. And if you're going to make specific claims talking about preventing specific diseases, you require a 510K. So seeing that there's now, I guess, somewhat of a little bit of a void to be filled from manufacturers from when we had the EUAs issued at the time. We're seeing kind of a pullback from manufacturers trying to determine what the best path forward is for those different markets areas that they were originally marketing in under the emergency authorizations. Some good points there, Jordan. Yeah. I think one of the things I personally have seen is that PPE has been used a lot more over the last couple of years by areas that wouldn't normally be used to using PPE. So, you know, we've been seeing things like hospital staff and, and healthcare workers you know, wearing, you know, sort of face screens, face masks as personal protective equipment, those types of things. And I think one of the things that has come apparent from that is a need for diversity in that the normal European standards that we've been used to working for have been pretty well much fixed into a certain sort of demographic of, of sort of male, you know, industrial type environments. Whereas during 2020 and onwards, we were seeing PPE being used by everybody from, so to say, healthcare professionals to key workers, that type of thing. And some of the, you know, the, the size and builds of, of nurses working in A&E wards and that type of thing weren't, you know, designed for the industrial applications that the PPE was designed for. And I think that's something that we're seeing coming through in that there's standards such as ISO 17420, which is the new ISO specifications for respiratory products and they do cover different ethnicities and genders within them. So I think that the industry as a whole is becoming a lot more aware of the need to supply PPE that's fit for purpose across all genders and, and, and uh, ethnicities rather than just for people that may be working in an industrial environment. Yeah, it sounds like these trends are really, really stemmed from the 2020 pandemic and it's really changing the regulatory landscape, especially for PPE equipment. With the trends that we're seeing, how are these trends affecting companies that are currently in the market and companies that are looking to get into the market? So I think with some of the companies that are already on the market, they're now having to reassess whether they can still maintain those registrations in the global market. Are they able to keep up with the EU requirements, you know, with the new ISO standards setting for different places, different races? Are they able to keep up with the U.S. new requirements that are out or do they need to withdraw from the market? And I think that's something that companies are now facing, making that business decision, whether they can keep up with the regulatory requirements. 
I also think there's a lot of practical implications as well. I mean, I know when the European Union spread further east and sort of incorporated countries like Poland and and and, and the uh, you know the, the Baltic states, one of the requirements is that you know user instructions need to be in the language of the uh, the point of sale. And when we were going then from about five or six different languages to cover, you know, Italy, France, Germany, Spain, UK, that type of thing, all of a sudden, user instructions were were having to be massive in covering, you know, every every country out of the twenty seven member states. So there, there's you know logistical problems, and I think also you know regulatory affairs have been a lot more complicated, as Kinga mentioned earlier on. Not only are you know people looking for a couple of set markets such as North America with NIOSH, C marking with Europe, you now have to have UKCA for the United Kingdom, MOAT for UAE, um, and each country or each region has its own specific idiosyncrasies. And trying to cater for those is is needing a lot more knowledge and your ears to the ground to know what the changes are that are occurring. Exactly, and mm-hmm. and the challenge that manufacturers are facing, obviously, what. Jordan and Nathan mentioned the, the different routes to compliance. But with that also comes the different testing methods that are required to demonstrate the conformity for the various product standards. Uh, and this can mean that although a PPE mask might be manufactured, a company to meet the requirements of, for the more, of the multiple markets, but the product still has to undergo the testing using different methods and different approaches and different acceptance criteria. So if we take, for example, FFP2 mask or N95 respiratory mask, there are similar in design and, and they may look identical and often they are identical, but in, in different countries, a different set of standards applies to each and, and the testing and the route to compliance is also different. So with the FFP2 mask, which conforms to the European standard EN149, we test the mask's ability to filter against two sources of particles, the sodium chloride and paraffin oil. And in the N95 masks against the NIOSH approvals would only the sodium chloride be tested. The same with differences in the breathing resistance flows and and pressure limits differ because the different flow rates are specified in, in various standards. Let's take, for example, different test conditions like temperature, humidity or different settings like in the Australian standard for masks that requires test subjects to walk at, at the speed of six and a half kilometers per hour compared to, to the six kilometers per hour in, in European standards. So the result of these variation in testing methods is that the manufacturers are having to repeat the testing multiple times with change conditions just to satisfy um, each of the criteria. And I, th- I think another thing to add is that respiratory products are, are generally high risk products for um, you know going into high risk environments, and they generally do involve some form of factory assessments to meet each global marketplace. That means that you could have to have an assessment for an Australian approval, for a NIOSH approval, for a European approval, or a UK approval, or even a you know, UAE MOAT approval. So really, if you can pick a certification body that has a global reach. We can combine a number of those assessments so that, you know, we can have one visit because they're all effectively looking at similar processes of, you know, goods receiving right the way through to uh, shipping. There are going to be nuances such as marking changes. But if you can pick a, a global reach certification body, then, you know, you can have one assessment that can cover multiple market accesses, thereby saving manufacturers time and, and expense uh, down the line. 
it sure sounds to me that new regulatory or landscape that's been created, there's a lots of hoops that companies now have to go through to make sure that the product is up to snuff. So what can companies do to help prepare themselves now so they don't run into issues down the road because there are so many hoops they have to jump through now? First and foremost, I think one of the most important things is to take a look at your product and have a regulatory strategy, have a pathway forward, know what the requirements are for the market. A good example for the EU, is your face mask going to be sterile? Is it non-sterile? If it's non-sterile, you may not need the intervention of a notified body. If it's sterile, you 100% need a notified body to take a look at that. Through the U.S., making sure that you comply with those regulations. FDA has some updated consensus standards, meeting those standards on top of everything else. So taking a look at what those requirements are and making sure that you can meet those requirements. And I think also manufacturers could engage at that point with the testing laboratory or certification body in the early stages of the product design so that they don't, you know, miss the critical milestones and of the product approval process. Because compliance processes do take considerable amount of time. So early engagement give you that best chance to gain approvals that meet the deadline. Ultimately, companies need to, you know, look for certification partners that I think understand the challenges that they face to help them to provide solutions to those challenges. And for example, very innovative products or products for the use by special forces, first responders or law enforcement often don't fall into a, a specific standard. And therefore, there is no clear route to compliance. We often find solutions for products with special applications through technical specifications against the PPE regulation. And this then allows CE or UKCA marking of bespoke products legally without the need to use a harmonized standard. Yeah, I think I agree with you know what Kinger and Jordan have said. I think it's initial scoping of what your 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 end goal is. There may be a change in course during that you know certification process and that regulatory process. But I think you've got to have a clear indication as to what you want at the end of it, so you know where you you know where you need to go to, what, what kind of boxes and standards you need to tick for. And I, I think that's probably one of the key bits. It's uh, not going in there slapdash. I think one of the problems that we did encounter, especially during the pandemic, was there was many people who were coming into the market just on a short-term basis, effectively to make a quick buck, and they had no experience on regulatory processes whatsoever. And they really did massively struggle with the fact that, you know, all of a sudden they were entering into a regulated world. And, you know, it was causing no end of heartache, both for us and for them, just not being able to achieve, you know, the the, the ability to place product onto the market because of their inability to, to have any back history. And I think that's one of the things that I really am looking forward to working with Nelson and RCA uh, in future, with, you know, collaboration with BSI in that we we do have that, you know, that global pitch and we, we can tap into RCAs and, and Nelson's, you know, healthcare and, and, and medical background, uh, complementing our PPE side, you know, sort of really hand in glove, I think. I agree. And Kinga, I think you said it best when you said that, you know, working with your testing partners, understanding up front and getting those tests done early, because nothing is worse than getting everything ready to go. And now you're waiting on your tests, you're waiting, you can't make your submission to your testing sense. So working with your partners to understand what you need early on is critical. Certainly. And and also reaching out sometimes is, is useful for companies to reach out to testing uh, laboratories that would allow for like a research-based testing to enable the companies to find design problems early on and avoid costly uh, and, and time-consuming things in the end. 
And I think another thing I'd just like to add is that generally when you know manufacturers enter the market, the compliance and the regulatory side is is the last bit of the process. It's seen as a non-value-added type activity that you've got to go through in order to place your product onto the market. And manufacturers do try and cut corners where you know where they're possible. And I think you know one the King King had brought up earlier on was that you know market surveillance authorities are all over PPE post-pandemic because of the the flood on there and the, the amount of stuff that was effectively sun, substandard entering into the market. And if a market surveillance authority does get their claws into you and you have to justify why you came up with a rationale to place a product onto the market, trying to cut corners at that early stages can only bite you later on if your product does come into question. So thoroughness and robust testing programs really do they may seem like a bit of heartache and expense at the time but you know further down if if, if you are being questioned it gives you a good you know due diligence process to establish that you have done the uh, regulatory work properly yeah and what you guys have mentioned i can't stress this enough for people being prepared you have to be prepared with it starts with the regulatory strategy and then making those connections with the certifiers like you guys have mentioned I know, obviously, one size doesn't fit all for every company. So what kind of help do you see the smaller and medium-sized companies looking for versus the enterprise-level companies? And can you guys provide some examples of ways that you guys have personally been able to help those different types of companies? Well, I think firstly, where where big companies might have big budgets to spend on compliance, the smaller enterprises don't. Therefore, Nathan mentioned this before, but for schemes that would require assessment audits to be conducted in factory grounds, we'll provide cost savings in offering one visit to cover multiple markets and multiple scheme certification schemes. And, And the same could be done a little bit with testing, uh, devising a, a test plan that impacts multiple markets across different standards uh, would be a big help to those smaller companies. Having one set of tests that can cover you know, multiple standards, and if the p- test plans are put together accurately, this ultimately saves costs. And as small companies often have great ideas, but they might have no understanding about regulatory compliance. Um, and, and they often don't have resources to, to do extensive research into product compliance. So this is where you know, we come in to show them the roadmap to, to that compliance as well. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. And, and as I say, enterprise organizations have got an infrastructure in place. They've probably got multiple offices across the world that can source intel on, on regulatory requirements locally and a lot easier. Whereas, as I say, your small SME type organizations, they do really probably look for certification bodies for guidance as to how to you know, meet you know, market access requirements globally. So you do have two totally different beasts. Often smaller companies, are, as King has said, is um, you know, coming up with innovative type products, trying to you know, have some sort of USP that's a little bit different for what they're trying to sell on place onto the marketplace um, and, and give them a bit of a bit of an edge. So it's, it's nurturing those SME and small type organizations through the regulatory minefield, really. And I completely agree. What I've seen with the larger companies is they, as you mentioned before, they, they have these teams, they have these processes in place, and they've done this before. Maybe not specifically for PPE, but they have products on the market. They've gone through the understanding of what the requirements are. Uh, these smaller companies may not have that. They may be you know, one, two people. It may be somebody doing in multiple roles within the organization. 
And a lot of times what I've found for the smaller companies is they're looking for someone to hold their hand through the process, to explain it to them, to walk them through what they need and explain why they need it. Uh, most of the companies that I've dealt with that are smaller companies aren't opposed to complying and meeting those requirements, but they want to understand why. And so the handholding is critical for them. So regardless, if you're a small company needing some handholding or a large enterprise company that has locations around the globe, it all comes down to being prepared. As we wrap up here, I do want to ask you guys, do you have any final thoughts um, about what we've talked about? Any key takeaways you want the listeners to get? I, I think um, something I, I would like to just sort of bring up is that, I mean, regulatory is normally seen as a very rigid and inflexible type framework whereby you, know, you have to tick all the boxes in order to be able to place product onto the market. But we do come across examples where you know, BSI deals with a lot with um, you know, military style respiratory products you know, used by special forces, which have their own requirements, which don't fit into a standard, but still need to have some form of compliance to you know European directives and NIOSH requirements and that type of thing. And I think it's being able to pick a, a certification body that has the ability to think out of the box and uh, look at those innovative solutions in order to allow and assist manufacturers to achieve their goals of placing product onto the market. And I think that's where, you know, sort of BSI, Nelson and RCA are going to really complement themselves in a collaborative way in coming up with those types of solutions for manufacturers to be able to do that in the future. I completely agree. I think with my final thoughts, um, manufacturers need to plan early for product compliance and make sure they place an emphasis on quality, um, especially with regulatory bottlenecks. Companies that engage with their partners early in the process are going to see the benefits the most. So make sure that you engage with those testing partners as soon as possible. Uh, and I think it was great to have this space to kind of reflect on what went on recently. And a lot of lessons have been learned from the last couple of years, and especially from the COVID pandemic and knee-jerk reactions and decisions that can have consequences that are costly and are time-consuming and, and, and long in duration. So it's definitely worth taking that extra time and meeting the costs up front to limit the pain points and, and unexpected costs further down the line. Yeah, I think those are all great takeaways from this. And to sign off here, I want to thank you all for taking the time out of your days to provide us with the great insights of the regulatory trends that are happening in the industry currently and the valuable information the listeners will get to help prepare themselves for the ever-evolving regulatory landscape. And I also want to thank our listeners for tuning into this episode of RCA Radio. Be sure to subscribe to be the first to know when we upload the next episode of RCA Radio. Thanks again and have a great day.